Hi everyone, this is Christian Weatherford. And Ellen Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us. Your favorite animal review podcast where we take your favorite species of animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, um, though we've received some comments that maybe we're making progress on that. Okay, they went straight to your head, I see. Yep. I was trying to stay humble. <laughs> I'm trying to remember our roots, remember where we came from. <laughs> I'm going to wear it directly on my chest. <laughs> However, we do a lot of research. We try our best to make sure we're getting the most accurate information we can. That's true. Yeah, sorry, we're recording a little later than we usually do this week. It's been a little bit of a crazy week, but we're here. It happens. Yeah. Such is life when you have two kids. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes things get a little nuts. But we're here to talk about animals. And there's nobody I'd rather talk about animals with than yes. you. <laughs> <laughs> and Christian, you go first this week. Yep. What animal do you have for us? So this week, I'll be talking about the Japanese rhinoceros beetle. I'm so excited about this. Yes. A couple of names that could be known by. Scientific names including Trypoxylus dichotomus or Alamerina dichotoma. Oh, it has two? How does it have two scientific names? It has been a little bit controversial oh. with its taxonomy. Oh, okay. I'm not sure which of the two is more correct. I've seen... <laughs> <laughs> contrasting opinions on that I sure. suppose, even in the um, in the specific sources i'm looking at all right we're just gonna skirt right on by that let's just sidestep <laughs> that entire conversation <laughs> i'm just gonna neo matrix dodge uh in japan they're known as kabuto mushi kabuto sounds very familiar to yes. me because of the pokemon kabuto yes kabuto is the japanese word for helmet oh and mushi is the word for insect or bug. Okay, it's all coming together then. Yes. Helmet bug. Yes. I can see that. This species was submitted by Sean O'Connell via email. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And for my information, I'll be using BBC along with a website called Web Japan, found at web-japan.org, which oh. is ran by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan. Okay. Yes. It's an official source. Also, the National Wildlife Federation, and a couple of articles that I'll cite as we go along. Okay. How robust. What a bibliography we've got going. I had to do it to him. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about it. Uh, I think lots of people are familiar with beetles. I'm pretty sure they can be found on all continents except for Antarctica. Yeah, some form of beetle, yes. I'm sure. So a fairly large insect. This one is dark brown in color. It has two horns. So specifically, it has a longer bottom horn attached to the head that ends in a forked or a Y shape mm. and also has a shorter top horn, which is attached to the thorax, it has a similar shape, but is curved and downward in the opposite direction and is shorter. The lower horn. <laughs> you ever see that episode of Futurama? Yeah, many times. <laughs> I realized that my brain had already filled in a lot of details, but then now I, as you're describing it, I realize that it's based purely on Heracross from Pokemon. It's funny you mentioned that. Because when you said brown, I was like, I thought it was a dark blue color. <laughs> I was like, no, you just thought that because of Pokemon. It was bipedal. Yeah, they stood up on their legs <laughs> and they were like six feet tall. Nope. But Heracross is based off of this beetle. That makes total sense. Yeah, I'll because... talk a little bit more about that later. Oh, okay. Now, I talked about these horns. It has two horns. One on its head, one on its thorax. Okay. What's the thorax? So when we talk about insect anatomy, we have three parts, three big main parts. We mm -hmm. have the head, the thorax, which is the middle bit, mm -hmm. and then the abdomen. So the thorax is kind of like what you would think of as being analogous to like a human's like chest area. Sure. 
and then the abdomen would be like waist down, yep. basically. So this smaller horn on their thorax is still pointing forward. It's very close to that part that meets the head, but it is on the thorax. It's like a dorsal fin. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens, though, just visually, when it moves its head back and forward, those two horns kind of meet and separate. Oh. Yeah, kind of like a pincer type. Wow. I've never seen that happen, but that sounds cool. Uh, Now, this is different from something like a stag beetle that has large mandibles. Oh, the side-to-side sort of pinchy bits. And those mandibles... They they move on their own. They right? look more like kitchen shears or right. something. <laughs> Whereas these horns aren't moving by themselves. It's the head and the thorax that that are moving. Oh, so they got to move the whole head. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, size-wise... Can I take a guess? Go for it. Um, five inches long. How about not including the horn? Not including the horn? Yeah, because that's what I have. <laughs> Three inches long. Close. Oh, good. I was close. Uh, so, not including the horn, I'm pretty sure, is... 1.4 to 2.2 inches long. It's pretty that's, close. That's big for a beetle. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, or in metric, three and a half to five and a half centimeters. Now, as the name might imply, this species is found in Japan, but it is also found in lots of other Eastern Asian countries. So it's found in China, uh, the Korean Peninsula, Vietnam, Myanmar, Laos, India, and Thailand. Okay. Uh, they're found in broad-leaved forests and tropical and subtropical mountainous habitats. Uh, and I'm getting that information, the location, by the way. Mm-hmm. I had to find an article just to find location information. Oh, you had to work so hard for this. <laughs> Titled, Phylogeny and Biogeography of the Rhinoceros Beetle, Typoxylus dicotomus in Coleoptera scarabidae, based on SNP markers. What's an SNP marker? It's talking about DNA and such. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And authors young at all. That's from Ecall Evol 2020. Okay. I'm glad someone's out there tracking down where these little dudes yes. are. Now, the, there's an interest in their DNA because uh, their taxonomy is, is pretty interesting mm. in, in that. Uh, Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a wide range. However, we're talking about 10 subspecies are found throughout Asia. Oh, so it's a little variation then yes. here and there. So all one species, but 10 subspecies. Okay. So we know that delineation can get a little fuzzy sometimes. Yeah. So like I mentioned in that article information, they belong to the taxonomic family Scarabiidae or the scarab beetles. I love scarab beetles. Yes. Aren't they just wonderful? <laughs> These are the ones that you think of when you think of like the, the from the mummy. That's that was my intro to the concept of a scarab beetle, honestly. That was a lot of our intro to a scarab beetle. <laughs> I don't think it was accurate, but <laughs> Well, that's certainly a scarab beetle, right? It's just not like the one you They're not done. running around eating dudes though. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, you meant like the depiction of the scarab yes. beetle in that movie was not not completely realistic. Correct. Yeah, I think they took some creative liberties with that particular scarab beetle, but... Star Wars did something similar in one of their novels. Oh, really? Yeah. With a scarab beetle? Uh, that's how I pictured it, at least in my mind. Oh. It, this is off track. But the it's way okay. that beetle worked, it would bite its victim like a full-grown person with a poison that basically mm-hmm. made their body swell up with fluid and then burst like a balloon, and all the beetles would come out of the sand and drink the fluid. I hate... <laughs> hate everything that you just said yes that was in the phasma book actually oh i love her that was the planet phasma was from i'm assuming she didn't get bit by one of those no they are a part of that story Mm, okay anyway anyway reeling it back in (laughs) now all rhinoceros beetles belong to the subfamily dynastinae (gasps) 
that's the name of the Orissa skin in Overwatch. Yes. I didn't know that, but now that yes. you say it. Yes. <laughs> that's the name of the skin in Overwatch where she looks like a beetle. Yes. Which is my favorite skin. Yes. No, it's not. Forest Spirit is my favorite skin. But anyway, continue. Among the rhinoceros beetles includes the Hercules beetle, which you may have heard of. Yes, for sure. Yes, the largest beetle and I think one of, if not the longest insect. I think a phasmid is the biggest insect. Like, I think one of the like walking sticks is the biggest insect. Phasmids are real? Yes. What do you think a phasmid is? So I just heard about a phasmid for the first time in Disco Elysium. What do you think it is? <laughs> it's a cryptid in that game. A cryptid? <laughs> You're basically telling me Bigfoot exists right now. <laughs> well, we've also got an episode on that, so maybe you should start listening to this podcast. <laughs> okay. That makes no, sense. phasmids are like walking stick okay. insects. Yes, they're real. Okay. And they're huge. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. <laughs> You learn something every day on this podcast. I've got so many tangents here. We're going to have a great time. Our first category of effectiveness usually describes physical attributes that help them do the things they do in their everyday lives. I'm giving an 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. So, of course, first thing is their horns. Yeah, what's going on here? So this is tied in with sexual dimorphism, Mm. which we like to talk about a lot. What does that mean? That means uh, characteristics that are only seen in one of the sexes of an animal. Right. Like ways in which their body can be different depending on whether they're a male or female. So in this case, the horns are only on males. A lot of times when you see these like really, really exaggerated traits that that only apply to like males of a species or something, Mm -hmm. what you can usually infer from that is that it is not a trait that they rely on to survive. Right. Right. Like this isn't (laughs) something that they absolutely need, right? It's not something they're using to like get food or something because if they needed it to survive, then they'd all have it. Sure. Now I think the females might have much less pronounced horns, but these very big horns is is, is on the males. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and those horns also have sensory hairs. Do they really? Yes. Or at least on the, the head horn. Okay. I guess that's the one you'd want it to be on, right? Because yeah. it's sticking out in front of you. So when you say sensory hairs. It gives them a way of know- knowing when they're touching something with them. Okay. So like mechanically sensitive yes. hairs, not like chemoreceptors Correct. or something. Correct. Okay. And that's from a paper titled, Sensilla Density Corresponds to the Regions of the Horn Most Frequently Used During Combat. Oh. In the giant rhinoceros beetle, Trypoxylus dicotomus, and that's by authors McCullough and Zinna, and that is from a conference paper for the 2012 meeting of the Entomological Society of America. Interesting. So walk me through that title again. They said something <laughs> about the concentration. Yes. Sensilla density, so referring to those little hairs. The little hairs. Corresponds to the regions of the horn most frequently used during combat. Does that mean that they have more hairs in the parts of their horn that they're usually swinging at each other? Yes, the parts that come into contact with each other. That seems backwards. You feel? I feel like you would want to feel that less, because that's going to hurt. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll touch more on what's going on there in okay. our ingenuity section. Okay, put that in your pocket. Put yes. that little morsel in your pocket. We'll come back later. Yes. So moving on for effectiveness, they're also strong. They can lift up to 100 times their weight. What are they lifting? Other beetles. Well, oh, <laughs> another beetle's not going to be a hundred times their weight. It's going to be one times their weight because it's another beetle. <laughs> this seems like overkill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, however, they do have a short lifespan. Oh. 
Um, and even then, 75% of it is spent underground. Underground? Yes. What are they doing down there? So their life cycle is this. So they start out as an egg. Mm-hmm. They hatch into a larva. Um, that larva molts several times until it turns into a pupa. I think I've seen the larva of beetles, at least beetles like this. Yes. And they're not my favorite. They're big. <laughs> grubs, basically. Yeah, big big grubs. Slimy, um, wormy looking sort of things. So that, that larva will get very big. And then its final molt turns it into a pupa, like a cocoon type thing. Oh, okay. And then it exits from that pupa as a fully grown adult. Now, it spends pretty much all of that pre-adult life underground. I suppose if you're a soft-bodied uh-huh. grub, you really don't <laughs> want to be exposed to the elements. Right. So it basically spends a whole year underground and then four months above ground to mate. You know what they're doing when they're underground? Eating. Gains. Oh, yes. Cultivating mats. <laughs> they're beefing up. Yep. Uh, now, when they're fully grown, they have good night vision. Their eyes really? uh, have 22,000 facets. What's a facet? So like a compound eye... Those little individual facets of a compound eye. Oh, like little lenses. Yeah. I see. So w- when you say that they have 22,000 of those, I don't know how to process that number. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's beyond, you know, uh, helpful imagination. But y- you said <laughs> that they have good night vision. So does that mean that like something we've talked about with compound eyes before is that with compound eyes, with lots of facets like this, you get great field of view, mm-hmm. but not great detail right (laughs) like low resolution but high like yeah angle is that kind of what's going on with these yeah and it's not like it needs the vision for prey but with this nighttime vision though they're also attracted to light oh so that can cause problems for them especially near humans (laughs) oh true yeah because i guess humans are going to be producing light at all hours of the night right however they do have a good sense of smell to find sap tree sap Aww. So this is a good time to mention their diet. Yes, so please. as adults is fruit, nectar, and sap. You know, with how big and like fierce they look, oh they're like they look very <laughs> strong and yeah. brutish. I guess I would have thought they would have been more predatory. They I guess I vibe. can see that. But when you kinda zoom out and realize they have four months. They're going after <laughs> high calorie, high mm. energy, high metabolism type diet mm. foods. True. Lots of calories packed into that yeah, sap. Yeah. I guess now that I think of it, if you think of like a rhinoceros, oh, they're yeah. big and bulky, but they're, you know, herbivores and they eat grass. Yeah. So yeah. Kind of a gentle giant thing going on. Mm-hmm. The larva, however, will eat decaying plant matter. We love to try divorce. Yes, very much. Uh, they can fly. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. They don't look like they should be able to do that. Yep. They can fly. So, they look like their proportions are all wrong for that. <laughs> they can do it, though. Even the Hercules beetle can fly. Really? Uh-huh. That can't be it's like... It's like a little helicopter. <laughs> like, you can feel the buzz. <laughs> I imagine that when they take off, it causes a little gust of wind around them. Yeah, like <laughs> imagine. And not only can they fly, but they can also take off vertically. Just, like, straight up into the air? Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. That rules. Like those Osprey planes? That's hilarious. Have you ever seen, you know, that reminds me of a long time ago, I watched a video of, I think it was a weevil that was trying to fly. 
And the way these things fly is just absolutely ridiculous. They're like flailing. <laughs> like it looks like flight was like an afterthought for them. Oh, where like they can do it, but they have to like splay their legs out. Have you seen this? Like beetles or beetles so. flying? Yeah. When they fly, they have to just like f- like go completely spread eagle. <laughs> and they look like completely unprepared for it. It's very funny. Speaking of their wings, they squeak or hiss when disturbed. Oh. Now... That's not coming from a mouth part or anything. Right. It's being produced by rubbing the abdomen and wing covers, also called elytra, together. So beetles all have two sets of wings, basically. Mm -hmm. They have the very thin, very long wings that do the flying. And then they have another set of wings over those that are much harder, much more dense um, to protect the flight wings. It's like a hatch that they pull down over it. It's like if you've seen a a ladybug. Mm -hmm. A ladybug is a beetle, right? Yes. So the the pretty part, (laughs) (laughs) the the red part with spots, is the elytra that's a modified four-wing. Yeah. And then, but you've seen that they can fly, right? They unfold it and then fly around with the back wings. So mm-hmm. that's why they look so silly when they fly. <laughs> the, oh, when these fly, by the way, they, they do this interesting thing where their legs are kind of like sticking out to the sides. That's what I'm talking balance. about. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, like the very goofy sort of flight stance <laughs> that beetles take. I think it's cool in this one, at least. You're very kind to them. <laughs> Uh, moving on to ingenuity, this yes. is where we're talking about smart things. I'm only giving a six out of ten, mm. and it's all around how males will battle each other for territory. This is just macho, yeah, toxic masculinity, and they're doing it for two things. <laughs> uh huh. They're doing it for the ladies, yes, and they're doing it for the tree sap. Okay, <laughs> do it for the tree sap. <laughs> is that like? Like in your workout room and in the gym, you've got like posters up on the wall of like, do it for the tree sap. It would be like defending a vending machine. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) You try to go to the vending machine and just some like big giant Batista looking dude just shoves you out of the way. (laughs) Not my jalapeno Cheetos. So, uh, when they do battle each other, that u- their ultimate goal is to either chase off the opponent, or when their sizes are close to each other, they'll actually duke it out, fighting to flip the other over. Oh, to flip the other. Yes. So, that's where that strength comes into play. Okay. Because to lift one's opponent is one thing, mm-hmm. but to yeet them <laughs> is another. So, this is a grapple. <laughs> so, what they're doing is they're using those horns uh-huh. to kind of uh, get them scissored between those two horns to give a, get a grip on them and then they will oh, like, that's why they come together they like rear up to then throw them oh interesting yes okay so the horn is functioning as kind of like a pancake flipper right <laughs> so even the the related beetles that have these kinds of horns that look a little bit more menacing like mm. even the hercules beetle looks a little menacing right it's not meant to pierce through skin and stab and slice that's not what it's for mm. it's for grabbing i guess from like the perspective of a human when we some, see any sort of bug or insect with a large pointy bit right we immediately are like that's going directly into my skin oh yeah because there's plenty of those because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's usually what's about to happen yeah so this is where those sensory hairs come into play mm. so i mentioned um, they'll only fight when the sizes of the the two males are close to each other so the way they figure that out 
is by bumping each other with those horns, with those sensory hairs to get an idea of how big the opponent is. Sizing each other up a little bit, giving a good ocular pat down. I love choosing your battles. That's a great idea. Yeah, and then the idea is if there's a huge size difference, the smaller one's just going to nope out of there. Well, that's good. That's smart. That's clever, right? (laughs) Right. Knowing your limits. Right. But if they're close, there's going to be an escalation going on. It's so funny, by the way. There are really good videos of this. (laughs) Yes. And there's a reason for that, which I'll touch on. Well, I was thinking of the BBC video. Yeah. Where they're just like flipping each other off of a branch. And it's so like humiliating to watch because when they fall, because a lot of times they'll flip them off of like a tree branch or like something like that. Yes. And they have to fall a really long way and they like flail the whole way down and it's tragic. (laughs) I feel like I saw a separate documentary. I'm not sure if it was a related beetle or not, but in that documentary, it was funny because a male had just defeated another male, but in his celebratory (laughs) like... Victory lap. <laughs> Victory lap. <laughs> the female he just won over, he flips her off the tree too. <laughs> he was just so lost in the moment. <laughs> I'm a god. None stand before me. <laughs> and then it wears off and oh man. But isn't that s- such a cautionary tale about like Letting your toxic masculinity get the better of you, because then you also didn't lose this, the girl. Didn't this happen to Hercules? Well, not Disney Hercules. I was gonna say like mythology Hercules in a way, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. I love Beetle Brains. <laughs> Nothing going on in there. They're just having a great time. Right, and then our final category of aesthetics. How cool are they? How cute are they? That kind of thing. How nice to look at. I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. Really? What, is that higher or lower <laughs> than you're expecting? Lower. They're cool. They're pretty cool, but there's a lot of cooler looking beetles Dang, out there. you're right. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> there are cooler beetles. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like their whole vibe they got going on. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. Little tanks. This is where we would talk about things that kind of kind of affect their wildlife population. Mm-hmm. These beetles are very popular as pets. Yeah. Okay. So I've heard yes. this, especially in Japan. Hence, yes, a lot of my sources. Uh, so they are very popular pets. They're fairly low maintenance. You can get them in department stores, apparently. Oh, yeah. Like walk in a pet <laughs> I guess that doesn't super surprise me because I I used to work at a pet store that mm. did sell some large insects. Yeah. Like scorpions and tarantulas and yeah. stuff. So I guess a you know a beetle's not that far off. Yeah, so they're you know very popular pets. They're also very popular in gambling gladiator fights. Mm. So that BBC article you mentioned, mm-hmm. it kind of digs into that a little bit where people will purposely put two of these beetles together, like two males together to duke it out, and people are gambling on which beetle is going to win. Got it. Pure arena uh, battle bots style. Yeah. And, you know, at first, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. Seems uh, a little ethically dubious. It's it's in that gray area, I think. But at least, again, these gladiator battles are not, like, to the death or anything like that. It's okay. just, you know, remember, they're just trying to flip each other Oh, yeah, over. you mentioned that they're just flipping each other. Yeah, so and you... off of the what is really the arena. Okay. So it's not the sort of thing where they're, like... <laughs> it's like sumo wrestling rules. Okay. Yeah. Not knock the opponent out of the ring. Sure. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, wanted to talk about media references. Absolutely. So you mentioned Heracross from the Pokemon series and yes. games. 
So with Heracross, uh, you can see the resemblance, but normal Heracross only has one horn on its head. True. But the shape of that horn does resemble, you mm-hmm. know, the actual rhinoceros, the Japanese rhinoceros beetle. Mm-hmm. But when you get a mega Heracross. Mm, now we're talking. <laughs> they more closely resemble the Hercules beetle, but it does yeah. show the two distinct horns better. Now, little uh, trivia. Yeah. What is Heracross's typing? Bug fighting. Yes. Yes, it is bug fighting, and I know that because I know it has a times four weakness to flying because <laughs> I have exploited that <laughs> mercilessly. But now it makes sense, though, right? Because now we yes. got these Japanese rhinoceros beetles that... Because they're fighting. Yes. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I did always kind of wonder why it had a fighting type. Yes. But that does make sense. And I believe Heracross is, is also depicted as going for tree sap in the anime, at least. I think in the new Pokemon Snap... I think you can see Heracross like on a tree. Yeah. I literally just as we were talking right now realized that it's Heracross because the Hera part of the name comes from Heracles, oh. the Greek version of Hercules's name. Oh, that makes sense. Heracles, like Hercules. Beetle. Yeah. That makes It's all sense. coming together, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Other media, Kubo and the Two Strings, that one is the double what is the word a double entendre thank you because it features a bug samurai right yes <laughs> so he is a, a samurai who wears you know a suit of samurai arm armor mm. but he is also a was he hercules beetle what kind of beetle was he i don't remember i think they just called him beetle yeah but like you mentioned earlier like the word kabuto Helmet. means both yeah so, because uh, it reminded them of the samurai helmet. Mm-hmm. It's a cool uh, character in uh, in Kubo, though. That's a great yeah. movie. Everybody should watch it. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other media reference that comes to mind is A Bug's Life. <laughs> I Was feel there like, one in A Bug's Life? I feel like I'm the only one that, that remembers A Bug's Life. <laughs> no, lots of people remember A Bug's Life. Um, however, there's a large beetle character in there. Okay. They gave him a horn that was resembled an actual rhinoceros however mm. <laughs> they were riffing i guess a little bit right i don't know maybe there is a beetle out there that does actually look like that but that, that's what came to mind yeah i haven't watched that movie since i was like a little kid it was developmentally significant for me i think you think so <laughs> yeah i guess yeah that movie came out in what like the tail end of the 90s yeah. right mm-hmm. so that would have been right when you were you were right in the demographic for that i saw the movie in theater had it on vhs had the playstation one game you know what that was finding nemo for me oh, okay and then i watched the ripoff movie ants that came out shortly afterward i unfortunately my mom took me to see that in the movie theater and this is a horrifying movie yeah I sh- it's very dark <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know what happened what? i about i don't probably maybe 10 15 minutes in uh i started crying and we left mm. <laughs> which okay. is not the only movie <laughs> that happened at when i was a kid so we did not make it through that movie but there was an attempt okay (laughs) there was lots of big name actors in there the only one i remember though is christopher walken and ants yeah that he would be in that Mm -hmm. That has his vibe doesn't it he was like a right hand military ant that could fly okay i remember that not the main bad guy it was like the edgy bug's life anyway thanks (laughs) that's the japanese rhinoceros beetle that's an awesome animal thank you what a charming little bug thanks i feel like you don't do insects very often i don't um the closest i got i think were spiders yeah sure that's good you should do more insects yeah 
Thank you. That was delightful. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Okay, zebras, uh, orangutans. Oh, yes, sorry. Hi. I'm not used to the animals talking. Uh, Who are you? Yes, my name is Carrie Poppy. I co host a podcast called Ona Ross and Carrie. This is my co host, Ross, right here. Okay. We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal. And we were wondering if we could get on the ark. You did come two by two. I Thank appreciate you. that. Though most of the things I'm letting on the ark don't talk. I'm going to be talking all up on this boat. Do you mind both? I prefer ark. Or okay, barge. I'm not listening, but. If you let me on, mm-hmm. then I will make my really good podcast on your boat. Can you barge. at least help clean up all the poop? I guess I don't see why not. Well, I'll check out the podcast. Where do I find it? It's on MaximumFun.org. Oh my gosh, hi. I'm Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture trivia podcast, Troubled Waters. On Troubled Waters, we play games like motivational speeches. It goes a little like this. Riley, give us an improvised motivational speech on why people should listen and subscribe to Troubled Waters. I look around this ad and I see a lot of potential to listen to comedians such as Jackie Johnson and Josh Gondelman, and they need you to get out there and listen to them attempt to figure out sound rebus clues or determine if something is a Game of Thrones character or a city in Wales. I have chills. I'm going to give you 15 points. All that and so much more on Troubled Waters. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you choose to listen to podcasts. All right. So what have you got for us, Ellen? This week, I will be telling you all about the Indian Muntjac. Muntjac? Muntjac. That's right. Scientific name Muntiacus Muntjac. This species was submitted by Alec Wetzel. Thank you, Alec. Mm. And I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, Australian Geographic, and Thai National Parks. Ooh. Uh, what do you think a muntjac is? Had you not shown me mm-hmm. a couple days ago, I would have no idea. I, w- I would have guessed a fish, actually. I think you did guess a fish yes. when I told you <laughs> the name of what it is. What you showed me was a deer. It is a deer. Yes. Yes, okay. it is a very small deer. They're 15 to 24 inches tall at the shoulder. Uh, that's 40 to 65 centimeters for metric listeners. So it's a very small little deer. They're found in Southeast Asia, from India to the Malay Peninsula and down into Indonesia. They belong to the deer family, which is Cervidae. And there are 12 scientifically described species of muntjac. Oh, okay. So Indian muntjac is only one of them. There are 12 that have been scientifically recognized, and they think scientists think there are more that haven't been described. Muntjacs are believed to be the oldest living deer. So muntjacs split off from the rest of the deer around, I saw like between 25 and 30 million years ago. Hmm. And muntjacs have been around relatively unchanged since the Ice Age, which is not true of most of the other deer. Most other deer have adapted rapidly over time. There's been a lot of radiation where, like, deer would will go into a specific, like, niche in a certain area, and then they'll change a lot to adapt to that particular place where they live. Not so with the muntjacs. They've been pretty consistent since the Ice Age. So what that means is that they have a lot of traits that are left over from their very early deer ancestors. By radiation, you mean 
dispersal and not yes okay. i meant like as in <laughs> radiating from a point rather than yes divergence is what i probably should have said okay divergence would I like, be a I better i want word. to hear more about these radioactive well, no, radiation is like the word that i that, that i hear used a lot and yes. like when you're talking about like animals branching off into a lot of different like evolutionary branches um, but divergence is a better word for what I meant. <laughs> um, but since they have a lot of these old traits of these like deer ancestors, it gives them a very unusual look. Like they look very different. They have this sort of prehistoric mm-hmm. sort of look. They don't look like other deer that, that like you and I would be used to because the deer that we have seen have changed a lot over time and they haven't. But they look more like their ancestors did, whereas the deer that we, you and I are more used to have, have lost some of those traits. Mm. And I'll get a little bit more in a, to what those traits are in a minute. I kept seeing them described as like primitive deer, which I don't love to use that word because like that kind of implies like inferiority or something. Mm. Um, but it's just that, you know, they haven't necessarily, they have adapted in their own ways, just they've retained a lot of ancient traits, which is pretty cool. Okay. So for effectiveness for the Indian mudjack, I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. Uh, first of all, they do have antlers. Males have short antlers, but there's a part of them called the pedicle. And what this is, is the bony extension of the skull that the antlers attach to. Uh-huh. So in the deer that you and I are used to, it's like a little lump on the head, like a little lump poking out of the skull that the antlers stick out of, basically. Sure. So when the antlers fall off, they leave these sort of bumps on the skull Yeah. that then, you know, the new antlers the next year grow out of. Their pedicles are really long. Huh. Like, really, really long. And since that's like a protrusion of the skull, that whole part is covered with fur, like skin and fur. Yeah. So it just looks like it's like part of their head. I'm imagining giraffe ossicum. It looks kind of like that, but like even more part of the head. Okay. And then the antlers that stick out are actually really short. They have these little forked antlers that stick out. They're actually really small. Huh. Yeah, it's a strange look. It's a very strange look. Like the antlers are like an afterthought. Uh, but like other deer, they do shed their antlers annually. Now, another thing that you will notice when you look at a muntjac is... They're fangs. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> they have long, pointy canine teeth that poke out under their upper lip. Why? Giving them these little vampire fangs. And that's actually the way deer originally looked. That's like an old trait. Huh. And really, we should be asking, why don't more deer have them? <laughs> like, There are other types of deer. So Chinese water deer have even more pronounced like fangs i'm using fangs kind of colloquially to mean like long canine teeth not like snake fangs right they're not venomous or anything they're they're, it's just long teeth (laughs) chinese water deer have them like really pronounced they really stick out um but in in muntjacs you can still see them they have these pointy little canine teeth that stick out and that is actually a leftover from the ancestor of the deer which didn't have antlers but did have tusks so it's a tusk. Oh. It's like a it's like a remnant of ancient tusks. Huh. Yeah. Very interesting. But the reason they have them is to fight each other. <laughs> they Always. they use them to fight each other for territory, but they can also use them defensively. 
Mm. So if if they're being attacked by a predator, they have lots of predators. Uh, and if it's a predator that's like close to the same size as them, like maybe like a dog, they can actually fight back and can sometimes fight them, fight them off. Huh. Yeah. Between the antlers and the fangs and like hooves. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty formidable considering their size. Huh. If you're not used to seeing deer with long pointy canine teeth it can really catch you off guard right i mean at least they're not the size of white-tailed deer with these fangs right at least they're not that big (laughs) at least they're pretty small but another thing that's interesting about that is that munchaks are omnivorous really so in an indian munchaks are omnivorous i only saw this like for this specific species other ones might also be but i couldn't confirm that But in addition to the grass and foliage that you would probably expect a deer to eat, they also eat small animals and bird eggs and even scavenge on carrion. Huh. Yeah. So we got this little meat-eating deer (laughs) running around. That's not like, you know, item number one on their menu. Gritty reboot of Bambi. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Bambi's back. <laughs> this is this is Bambi's uh, revenge arc, okay. is what it is. Yeah, tactical assault Bambi. But that's actually not the most, I think, visually noteworthy trait that they have. The thing about them that really gets your attention is this thing they have called preorbital glands. Preorbital means in front of eyes. Right. So... Actually, like other ungulates, they're not the only ones that have these. In fact, in like the deer that we have here, they have these glands. It's, these li- it's this little gland in front of the eyes that appears as a little slit opening. And it's actually analogous to our, um, what do you call it, lacrimal glands? The tear glands, basically. Oh, okay. I, was like, I don't know what that is either. But <laughs> It's analogous to our tear glands. Okay. And it works pretty much the same way. It secretes like fluid. But the fluid that these glands secrete is more, uh, it's full of like pheromones and huh. compounds and stuff that they use more for communicating with scent. So what they'll do is like rub their eyes basically on like, you know, trees or leaves or something like that to rub this secretion onto surfaces that they, they want to mark with their scent. Oh. So these are solitary animals. So they leave their scent behind to like mark their territory, let others know where they've been, uh, things like that. This is not uncommon for deer. This is a thing with deer. You'll see deer like rubbing their faces on stuff to leave their scent behind. The thing about munchaks is that munchaks in particular just so happen to have absolutely enormous preorbital glands and they have a tendency to like open them and like flare them. Oh. So like I saw a lot of videos of them being like kept in zoos and and stuff like that where they'll do it like if they're hungry or while they're eating they kind of like open and shut their like preorbital glands and it is disgusting. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm just going to show you a video real quick. Why are you cursing me with this knowledge? <laughs> Because of the cookie cutter shark, that's why. (laughs) Because you did this to me just like two weeks ago. This is my revenge for the last episode we did together. Time to balance the scales. Yes, exactly. Let me just get this video up so I can get your live reaction. If you could just hit play on that. No. (laughs) No. 
You see what I'm talking about? I don't like that. It's, How would you describe this motion that they're doing? It's it's nonsensical, right? It goes all the way through to their forehead, doesn't it? Does. It does. So they have so they have frontal glands, uh-huh. which are the the things on the side of the like V shape in their forehead. That's frontal glands, but the preorbital glands are the ones that are like on their snout, just below their eye. Uh, it like it's a, just glands all. It's glands everywhere. They're just. It's all glands. It's just more like a like a prolapsed sinus. <laughs> <laughs> It's so Lovecraftian to look at their face because it's like pulsating in weird ways and like there's just orifices where you don't expect them to be. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> huh. Yeah. So that's what they're all about. It looks very, very strange. And and it's funny because that is a trait that like other deer have, just not as exaggerated as this one. Recently I've seen a lot of videos of like them doing this, like floating around because it looks really weird. So if you've been curious about what's going on in that video, that's what it is. It's just it's just their like tear glands, basically. So when you when you understand it, it's not that big a deal. It just looks gross. It looks very unsettling. It's eliciting the same kind of reaction when you see a video of a really bad hernia. How many videos of hernias have you watched? <laughs> well, I've never watched a video of a bad hernia. Because <laughs> you're like you're saying something that, that that shouldn't be there. That should stay inside. <laughs> I shouldn't be seeing the inside parts, right? Like <laughs> I shouldn't be looking through any part of you. Uh. Yeah, it's it's very uh, unsettling, and it makes me feel weird. You know what? I should say that if you have trypophobia, if you have that like uneasiness about looking at weird holes, don't look up videos of the of the munchax mm. or preorbital glands. It sets off that sort of like gag reflex in me. So yeah, that's what's going on with them. <laughs> There's one other thing that I I guess I wanted to put it in effectiveness, though I couldn't really decide whether to be a plus or a minus. So I'm just going to talk about it. They have weird genetics. Are you familiar with what a chromosome is? Very little, yes. (laughs) So chromosomes are basically long strands of DNA. It's like a bundle of DNA. And this DNA is the instructions to build the organism's body. Mm-hmm. So, do you know how many chromosomes humans have in their DNA? The 23? Is 23 pairs. So, 46. So yes. Okay. Each pair of chromosomes contains one chromosome from each of your parents. Okay. A red deer has 68 chromosomes. How many do you think Indian munchaks have? So humans have 46. Uh-huh. Red deer have 68. How many do you think an Indian munchak has? I don't even know what direction I go. <laughs> I can give you one more number. Okay. A fruit fly has eight. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Somewhere around the 70 range, perhaps? They have six. What? Indian munchaks have six chromosomes. Females have six. Males have seven. So they have the lowest recorded number of chromosomes of any mammal by far. Huh. Fewer chromosomes than fruit flies. It's shocking how like few chromosomes they have. So chromosomes are usually you think of like the X and the Y chromosome that have sort of a defined like shape to them. Mm-hmm. They have ends. And the ends of chromosomes are capped 
by uh, telomeres, which you can think of kind of as maybe like the aglet on the end of a shoelace. Um, it's like a little cap at the end that keeps the whole thing from unraveling. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. Or from, like, just replicating itself indefinitely. There's just this little cap on the end that's like, this is the end of the chromosome. I'm really glad that episode of Phineas and Ferb was played the other day in our living room. (laughs) So that I know what an aglet is. It's stuck in my head for the rest of my life. I'll never forget it. Um, So the weird thing about telomeres, these little caps at the end of the chromosomes, is that Indian muntjacs in particular have what are called sticky telomeres, which means that their telomeres contain DNA sequences that actually encourage recombining with other DNA. So when scientists looked at the telomeres of Indian muntjacs, they saw that there was like a bunch of like rogue DNA strands like Mm. stuck on there. Hmm. It just seemed like they had like an affinity for like bonding to other DNA. So what happened is that over time, the ends of their chromosomes fused together, giving them fewer but larger chromosomes. Okay, that so, makes sense. Yeah, there was, um, in, in an interview uh, with Gizmodo, biology professor David Ray from Texas Tech University gave a really good analogy to understanding this. He described it as if you printed two books together like you combined two books into one book and printed them together end to end you would have all of the same information and all of the same words right. just bound in one set of covers right that's kind of what's going on yeah. here so they have all the same genetic information everything just in these mega chromosomes instead of individual ones which isn't unheard of scientists know that humans have a fused chromosome So the chromosome number two has remnants of telomeres in the middle, which they should be at the ends. Okay. But it's got these like old remnants of what used to be telomeres at the middle of the chromosome, um, as well as its ends, suggesting that those were two chromosomes that fused together in the middle. And what used to be the ends are now the middle. Okay. And that actually helped scientists like piece together human evolution Mm. because most other great apes have 24 pairs, but humans are the only ones that have 23 Okay, because of this fused chromosome. So it's not unheard of for chromosomes to fuse together like this. It's just the extent to which the these munchaks have been doing it is like off the chain. (laughs) Like they're, they've really uh, taken the concept and ran with it. So there's kind of this question about like, does this help? Like, why is this helping them at all in some way? So there's kind of some thoughts either way. It might help make DNA duplication easier Hmm. because you're having to duplicate fewer sets of information, like fewer sets of chromosomes. But this also means that the impact of damage or loss to one chromosome has a much bigger impact. Hmm. So like in humans, you can sometimes have a chromosome like lost or damaged or something, and you may be severely impacted by it. You may be fine. Whereas for a muntjac, if they lose one of their chromosomes, that's like a lot of genetic information that they probably can't afford to lose. Hmm. So it could kind of go either way. Like the jury's still kind of out as to like, is this helping? Is this hindering? A lot of times in biology, you see things that happen over time that aren't helping but aren't hurting either, right? Like these things just happen by accident. And then if it doesn't kill you, it just continues getting replicated over and over again. So it's like, I don't know, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. Jury's still kind of out um, on that. And I got 
kind of all of that information from this really interesting paper titled Rapid and Parallel Chromosomal Number Reductions in Muntjac Deer Inferred from Mitochondrial DNA Phylogeny. And that was by Wen Wang and Hong Lan in Molecular Biology and Evolution in September of 2000. It sounds like the biology version of defragmenting computer memory. If I knew enough about computers, I would be able to (laughs) play in this space with you, but I don't. (laughs) This is more with like hard drives and not solid state drives, but where um, memory can be fragmented. Say you have a a Word document Mm -hmm. and it it gets broken up into blocks of memory. Sure. Say say it's 10 blocks of memory. Those 10 blocks aren't anywhere near each other it's just wherever there was space on your hard drive mm-hmm. um, to fix that you, you try to put them all close to each other to defragment them okay it makes it quicker to 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 find those blocks of memory for the thing you're trying to find okay i would think this would be more like let's say you had 10 different word documents mm-hmm. And you made one Word document and copied and pasted every single one of those documents into the one Word document and then deleted all the rest of them. Yeah. So it's like just condensing it all into one file, but that Mm -hmm. one file still contains all the information you had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think of it. Yeah. Interesting. Like I said, can't really tell if that's helping. Is that doing anything for you? I don't know. Maybe. So moving on to ingenuity, I'm giving the Indian Munchak a 7 out of 10. There is one particular behavior that they do that I really wanted to talk about because it gives them one of their names, which is the barking deer. So when they detect danger, such as an approaching predator, they make what is usually referred to as a barking sound. Okay. Which is not the way I would describe the sound that they make. I would describe it as a scream. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard a dog bark the way that these things bark. It's like a a scream of like abject terror. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if it was kind of like an elk. Not at all. Okay. No. I think an elk bugle is just beautiful. This is not a beautiful sound. The sound name, it's a high-pitched, hoarse kind of scream. I mean, yeah, I think calling it a bark is generous. (laughs) It is a bark, maybe if you've never heard a dog bark before. Yeah, it's just a really loud sound that they make. And they can continue making this call for up to an hour. Oh, man. Yeah, so (laughs) when when you face difficulty in your life, scream for one hour. (laughs) (laughs) You thought puppy and her howling was bad. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Imagine that for an hour. Scream for one hour. That's the the advice you can take from the munchak. Um, Which, like, that's great to, like, you know, alert your surroundings to predators and stuff. But it also, like, gives away your position, right? Like, it's like a homing beacon. Like, (laughs) hello, predators, I'm over here. (laughs) Or, alternatively, hey, I'm over here making this sound. Avoid me. (laughs) 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 That's how I would interpret it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's true. What if if they just annoy the predators into leaving? (laughs) I'm not going over there. Oh, that sucks. So in addition to males being, you know, aggressive towards each other, munchaks can be fiercely defensive. They will try to fight back if attacked by a predator and can even defend themselves against smaller threats. So Mm. like I mentioned earlier, they use their fangs to like fight back against predators that try to attack them. A lot of times people think that it is strictly fight or flight, but sometimes it can be both. (laughs) 
Hmm. You can fly and fight. <laughs> they're like, because they will, they will run away first, but like, they're going to go down swinging. <laughs> uh, and finally, for aesthetics for the Muntjac, I did give them an eight out of 10. They're really cute. It's a tiny little deer. And like, they have cute little antlers and tiny little dainty feet. And like, they're really cute. Just don't look too close. I'm surprised, honestly. <laughs> love the eye nostrils like that's not the cutest that's not my favorite thing in the world but like it doesn't deter me that much because they're not like always open so they're kind of cute i I do wonder what it looks like from a more i guess natural profile like if you see it from the side Mm -hmm. rather than yeah the video i showed you over and head on yeah i'll link the video that i showed you in the episode description because it's it's like a close-up too yeah it's like the worst possible angle to see it from okay i'll give it that so i think they're kind of cute i like them uh so to wrap things up for the indian muntjac for conservation status this particular species is of least concern but there are muntjac species of conservation concern, like the critically endangered giant muntjac, which lives in Vietnam. Um, that one is is critically endangered, and they're not doing very well. What is giant? It's not. I mean, it's still not that big. Okay. You know, okay. but it's bigger than other muntjac. I didn't look up, you know, stats on the giant muntjac, but I did see some really beautiful camera footage, oh, okay. like camera trap footage of one. That's like the only time one has been seen in a certain area, like oh. ever. And the, they had this camera trap set up for like a really long time, and they only saw one. Oh, so they they are rare even where they live. But so the the giant muntjac is critically endangered, and some of the other muntjac species are of varying levels of endangerment. But this this one is doing okay. I think it's because they have such a wide range. Um, and they can be pretty common in their range. So, <laughs> and just the last little thing I wanted to say was that there was a small captive herd of not this one, but Reeves muntjac, which is a different species of muntjac, that was brought to Woburn Abbey in England in 1894, mm. where they escaped, whether intentionally or not. I think it's sort of the thing where like, some of them escaped, some of them were set loose intentionally, okay. uh, and established an invasive population where they thrive to this day. Huh. And there are lots of them oh. in like, southern England. Okay. Still. Interesting. Yeah, they're like an invasive species in England. (laughs) (laughs) How's it feel? (laughs) (laughs) Do you happen to remember when that population escaped or like what? 1894 was when they were brought to England. Okay. And I don't think it was that long afterwards that they started to you know, establish a feral population. Interesting. But that's why a lot of information that I, like, was able to find on Muntjacs in general was from, like, British hunting guides and stuff. Oh. Because in England, you you can, like, hunt them. Sure. They're common game in England. Huh. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting note to end on. So that's the Indian Muntjac. Thanks, honey. Thank you. And I really hope that everybody listening has enjoyed what they heard today. We had a lot of fun bringing it to you. A little late, but I hope it was worth the wait. But anyway, uh, if you liked what you heard today, I'd love it if you could leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, I have a few reviews that people have left us that I want to give some attention to. First up is from Apple Podcasts, and it is a review left by K Nims. 
And K Nims says, even when the critters being discussed aren't the most lovable, Ellen always makes them sound so sweet and worth loving. Such an upbeat, delightful way to learn about new animals or learn new things about the animals you thought you knew. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciated that. Thank you. I think that was a direct reference to the cookie cutter shark, maybe, because oh. we just came off of the cookie cutter shark, and I'm still personally recovering from that. <laughs> um, and the other one was actually posted in our Facebook group. Oh, uh, This was from Josh Mock, who said, over the past year or so, I've listened to every episode you've made. I love you two so much. However, I don't know that you can make the claim that you aren't experts. You've spent so much time on this that you have become self-taught experts. Keep it up, please. And now, while I, I will not necessarily identify with a label of expert, I'm too humble for that. But no. Christian isn't. So, you know I'm what? I'm going to shred my computer science degree. <laughs> print a screenshot of that out and put it in the, the frame. Oh, in the in the diploma <laughs> yes. like frame, yeah, yeah, for sure. I I don't know. I think there comes a point at which you know. I I mean, I'm an expert in making this podcast. Nobody makes this podcast better than I do. Yeah. Oh, and and actually, you know, as we were talking, I got a notification that we had another podcast review. This was from hey. Podchaser. Uh, and this is from Nicole M83, who says, by far our favorite family podcast. We have two girls who are eight and four. They're fascinated by the information and look forward to listening to an episode every night. Aww. Isn't that great? <laughs> Thank you so much. I just, I really appreciate the sweet words from people. And mm-hmm. I like hearing about how, how people are relating to animals through us it's very it's touching and i appreciate it so yes. thank you to everybody who who lets us know what the show means to you um we're on facebook twitter instagram discord and i am personally on tiktok so links to all the places where you can hang out with us online will be in the episode description if you want to learn more about our network and how you can support us and the other shows on our network, you can head over to MaximumFun.org. I realized earlier, I should say more often that we have merch on MaximumFun.org. I realize that that I don't really advertise that as much as yeah. I should, but uh, we do have <laughs> merch over on the Maximum Fun store. So head over to the website for that. You're being humble. D- designed by ellen yes it is an original design i I, well it is some original designs that i I did make yes so uh i think they're pretty cute and uh, i have seen pictures that people have sent me of the stickers they're like sticker designs uh and they they seem to be very cute and they have come out very well so there's also shirts though aren't there there are shirts also yeah one of them is because one of them is a manatee design and it's like a manatee shirt yes which I think is adorable. <laughs> um, and thank you to Louis Zong for our theme music, which is a bop and a half. <laughs> Do people say that? Uh, one you person let me say it. that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> At least one person. No accountability whatsoever in the studio. You let me say whatever. I'm just giving a thumbs up behind the glass. It's fine. <laughs> behind the glass that's definitely present in the room with us right now. <laughs> well thank you my love thank you bye bye
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.